We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. We've got a lot to do, so we're going to jump right in. But I just I want to inform you. It's 8.59 in the, the Bibles in the chairs. I would encourage you to look it up and follow along as we read through it. If you have you version, if you use that, we have a live event. You're welcome to go and follow along and, and follow the notes there as well. Uh, but we're going to strive to answer the question of what do we do with Jesus? Like, what is the response that we're called to in Jesus? And, and as we work through this, I just want to go ahead and, and prime you for it now. I, I want you to really consider what you're doing with Jesus. Not what you did with him back in the day, not back when you first became Christian. What are you doing today with Jesus? We'll seek to answer that question as we read through these verses. We're going to read through. I'll stop along the way, just highlight some context for you so you keep it in mind, and then see what the Lord has for us. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So here we have the, the opening phrases, the opening words of Jesus' public ministry. So Luke opens, he shows us who Jesus was, he proves his identity, he establishes the fact that he's the one that's been promised by the prophets, that he's the one that, that is born of the virgin that Isaiah had spoken of 700 years before, that he is the one who the, the prophet that was promised by Malachi would uh, would come after that prophet, and that prophet would point him out. He's the one that John the Baptist was, was uh, full of the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. He's the one that was identified as the Savior by John the Baptist, even in his mother's womb. I mean, this is how big it was. This is, this is who Zachariah and Elizabeth, God's, God's priest and the priest's wife, that, that spoke of the things that, that was going to happen. He's the one that they were speaking of. He's the one that, that when the birth happened, who, who angels attended and announced his birth, he's the one that shepherds heard of and went and saw that everything they'd heard from the angels was true. And they, he's the one that they were proclaiming all of these things. He's the one that Israel had been waiting on. And Luke shows us this time and time again, and he even claims it for himself when he speaks of his father and doing his father's work and that, that he's the son of God. And he's the one, and when, at, at the point of his baptism, that the sky opens and a dove descends and, and God speaks from heaven, this is my son, you are my son, and with you I am pleased. He is the one that went into the desert and faced off with the devil and left unscathed, that succeeded, that, that won victory, that lived sinlessly. He's the one. And he comes down to this, to this time where he steps into the, to the light of his public ministry. He comes and stands on the stage of his public ministry. And it was an amazing time. And Luke highlights for us what Jesus was doing. But it's interesting to me that he doesn't highlight his miracles. Now, Luke's going to tell us all about all kinds of miracles. I don't want you to think that Luke doesn't care about Jesus' miracles. But these two verses, 14 and 15, these two verses, they, they, they give us a synopsis of about a year's worth of time based on some views of, of the commentaries, the commentators. If that's a year's worth of time, what, what Luke draws out for us is not the miraculous works that he's done, but his teaching ministry. Now, I think, and I could be wrong about this, but 
I think it's pretty normal. When we think about Jesus, we think about the things that he did, like blind people seeing and deaf people hearing, lame people walking, uh, 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 sick people being made well, uh, hungry people being fed. I, I think those are the things we think of. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's pretty amazing some of the things he did. He fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. I mean, he did some pretty crazy, astounding things. He walked on water. He turned water to wine. It's amazing the things he did. But as Luke draws us in to look at the opening days, the opening, uh, the opening of Jesus' public ministry, he highlights his teaching. Because Jesus didn't just come to be a miracle worker. He came to live a sinless life that he could die a sacrificial death, that he could rise victoriously. And while he was here, he preached about why he was here. And he told people what he had come to do. And then he worked miracles, not that they would stand by themselves, but that they would support and and prove the things that he taught. And so that's the first thing we see Luke showing us, that he's highlighting this aspect of Jesus' ministry, his teaching ministry. But there's a second thing he highlights for us. He shows us as Jesus comes into Nazareth, he comes in, and, he, and we see that it's his, it, it's his habit, it's his custom to go to synagogue. So that would be for, for us, it would be like going to church. Like every week, he went to synagogue. Jesus didn't go to synagogue because he was... But because he was trying to maintain his identity. He, he didn't go to synagogue so that he could be God's son. Right? We, you hear people talk about that all the time. Well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, you don't. It's not like a checklist. Okay, you can be Christian if you go to church. Jesus went to synagogue because he was God's son. And so that's the same idea. I mean, we need to pay attention to this. If we're going to follow in Jesus' example, if we're going to be like Jesus... As his people, if we're going to follow him, we need, we need to pay attention to this pattern. But we live, in a, we, we live in a busy, busy world, right? I mean, life happens. We get sick. And, and I'll just be the first to tell you, if you're sick, you're throwing up, you're running a fever, you're, you're not feeling I'd just soon you stay home because I don't want to be sick. It's not just about me. I don't want anybody else to be sick. Life happens. I know things get busy, but, but we live in such a busy and mobile culture that, that the, the tradition has become that, you know, it's every, every second, third, or fourth week. That a lot of people, that's just the, the rotation of their life. Now, I know, I, I already, please don't, don't, don't think that I, I know who I'm talking to here. I, I'm talking to the people who came out on a day that ice was possible on the roads. So it, you're either very legalistic or you're very committed. I don't know which one it is. But, but I, I recognize that, that you're here probably because you make it a priority already. But it's important for us. It's vital for us not just to come, but look at why Jesus was coming. Look at why Jesus was going to synagogue. He was going to teach. He was going to be a part of the mission that God was doing. He was going to be a part of what was, was happening at synagogue. And so this day, he walks into Nazareth, and he's, he's already been teaching in synagogues all around the area. And people are, 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 are just amazed at what they're hearing, at what they're seeing, at what they're experiencing. And he walks into the synagogue in Nazareth. And he's not one to sit back and just receive and never give back. He stands up to read. Well, what did he read? It's vital for us today. It's vital for us in our lives every day. He says in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled it, he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, so he reads the scripture and then he begins to teach. And we get one sentence out of probably what's a much longer teaching. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, just think about this, because up to this point, I think we're, everything's kind of going as we would expect it to go, right? I mean, Jesus shows up at the synagogue. He's already worked miracles. People have already heard his teaching. His reputation has preceded him. And so it's like the visiting preacher comes into town, this up-and-coming superstar in the Jewish religion. This guy is... is, is is teaching in ways that nobody else has taught. There's power being exerted from him. There's amazing things being said about him. And so what would anybody expect except that when Jesus shows up, he teaches? I mean, just imagine if Jesus walked in the door and I said, hey, Jesus, you know what? I, I got this. You take the day off. I, I can handle it today. I'd hope you'd throw me out. Right? I, I hope that we all long to hear from him. And that's exactly what happened. The people are receiving him. The, the man in charge of the synagogue, the, the guy leading the synagogue in that city, in that town, is like, hey, what, let's have Jesus come up and read. Let's have him be the one that teaches. Let's, let's make room for Jesus to stand in this place and, and teach God's word. Let's let him do that. We want to hear from him. They're receiving him. And then they're hearing this message, and, and you gotta, you got to imagine. I mean, they're excited about the message, I think. I mean, think about what he's saying. I have been anointed by God's Spirit. That means, that means simply that I've been coated with, I've been empowered with. I mean, picture oil being poured out over him and, and covering him from head to toe. Like, I've been covered by God's power, by God's equipping, by God's presence, that I might come to you and preach. Come to you and preach what? Good news. That I've, been, I, I've come to tell you all the good that God has for his people. All the good that God has made available. All the good that God is working. But who's he preaching to? To the poor. He's, he's come to proclaim news, good news to the poor. He's come to proclaim good news to the captives. He's come to proclaim good news to the blind. He's come to proclaim good news to the oppressed. These people who are on the fringes, these people who none of us would like to admit that we are, He's come to preach to them and show them that there's hope for the hopeless, help for the helpless, defense for the defenseless. He's come to let us see that, that, that God is working for His people what they can't do for themselves. Who wouldn't be excited about this message? I mean, even the world, when you stop and think about it, even the world longs to hear the church speak about and do things like this. Like they're all about the church when we're out feeding the hungry. They're all about the church when we're out freeing the captives and giving liberty to the oppressed. They're all about the church when we're out in joining them in or, or doing social justice projects. They're all about that. They're all about us making sure that we bring awareness to the fact that we live in a very racist world and that we are oppressing people, even sometimes unintentionally, out of ignorance. I had no idea that I was a, a racist till just about a year and a half ago when I found out because I wasn't 
doing anything. That I wouldn't speak about it at all. That I just left it for other people. That in some way I wasn't concerned about different ethnicities. Well, that stinks to have to deal with and own. Now, I'd, I'd begun to live in this place of comfort. And the reality is, is that the world around us is all about us being able to admit those things and own those things and then get busy doing those things. I mean, really, truly, it's just heartless people. I mean, who doesn't want these things to happen, right? Be like the Grinch that stole Christmas. That's the only, I mean, I mean, he doesn't want to celebrate Christmas. Who doesn't want to celebrate Christmas? I mean, because that's what you're really taking away is the, is, is the celebration, the year of the Lord's favor. Nobody wants to be that except the truly heartless and so you see them receiving this message, hearing these words and, and receiving it and appreciating it, approving of it. You see them re- appreciating and approving the, the work that he's done. And, 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 and just imagine what's going on. I mean, just you already kind of know the, the way it breaks out. I mean, we just read the verses, but Jesus reads those verses. He, gives, he rolls the scroll back. If this didn't happen in just a couple, I mean, it took time. He rolls the scroll up and he gives it to the attendant and then he walks across the room and with them all standing around him, this is the culture, this is the way that worked, they they would all stand and the teacher would sit and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. What he's saying is that the the one that Isaiah was pointing at, the one that Isaiah was prophesying would do these things, the one that Isaiah was speaking about is sitting here, right here in front of you. You're looking at him. What do they do? What says it in verse 22? It says, they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They were receiving his message. They were excited about his mission. Who wouldn't be? But see what's going to happen. I'm just going to give you a a little foreshadow. I'm going to give you a little taste of it. What's about to happen is, is the tone of this meeting is about to get flipped on its head. We're about to see the fickleness of mankind. We're about to see just how, how quickly we can change our minds, how quickly we can go from being excited about something to just being upset and offended and wanting to get rid of our problem. We're about to see it happen right here in front of us, right here in the matter of just a few moments. Commentators, the theologians that have studied this, they don't know exactly where it happens. But I think, it's my, I'm of the opinion, along with many others, I'm of the opinion that it happens right here in verse 22. Where it says, They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They're excited. They're amazed. They're, they're and wanting, I mean, they're like, whoa, this is amazing. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? You see, I think right there, there's a flip. Something happens. They are excited about what he's saying. They're excited about his message. They're excited about his mission. And then they suddenly are faced with the reality of who the man is. And they begin to doubt. I think that's what's happening. 
You see, Joseph's son, I mean, we saw that kid grow up from the very beginning. He's been in Nazareth since the day he was born. I mean, there was a time where he was gone. He was, he was in Egypt, but they come back. We've seen him grow up. He's a carpenter for crying out loud. He's no rabbi. Who, who is he that we're listening to him now? He's Joseph's son. Isn't he the kid that got lost in the temple and made his parents fret? Isn't that that kid? Yeah, that's that kid. And we don't know a lot about Jesus' life. We don't know a lot about what happened. But, but we know that he, he obeyed Mary and Joseph. He grew up, learned, just like every other kid learns. He grew up under the grace and, and goodness of God. But at some level, they're looking at him, and suddenly they appreciate the message. They appreciate, appreciate the mission, but they are not about to follow this man. And it happens so quickly, it's hard for us even to discern where it happens at. But as he responds to what they're thinking and what they're doing, this is what he says in verse 23. Let's pick it up. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So what he already knows is they're going to expect him to work miracles. They're going to expect him to do the things that he'd done in Capernaum. In Capernaum, it's it's about 20 miles from Nazareth. It's not that far away. It's close. The, the, The talk had already begun to happen. They already knew about all the things that had happened there, the teaching he'd given, the miracles that he'd worked, the sick people that were healed. Maybe they even knew some of them. Maybe they even had experience with it. Maybe they were even related to some. But they, they knew what was happening in Capernaum. They knew what was happening around the region. And now they're coming to this place where Jesus knows, you're going, to want me, you're, you're going to want something from me. And you're going to demand that I do something for you. And he quotes this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And, and, the, and the, the thought there, the colloquial, colloquialism that they're thinking he said, you try to say that fast, it's difficult. That he's referring to this idea that the physician should be able to take care of himself. Like, you don't go to a doctor that's sick because he obviously doesn't know what he's doing. You, you, don't, buy, you don't buy a fitness video from somebody that's overweight. Like, I put together a fitness video, probably not selling that many. Right? I mean, it's true. Jillian or Bob from Biggest Loser? You can laugh. It's okay. I'm all right with that. Biggest Loser? Oh, man, they put them out. People are buying them up left and right. See, that's the idea. Is you're, they're going to expect something from Jesus. They're going to expect to hear from Him. They're going to expect to see power exerted from Him if He's going to make these claims. But this is the carpenter's son. This is Joseph's son. He, he's a carpenter. And they begin to reject the man. He said to them, verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So here's the thing. And this is, about, this is about to burn them up. This is about to make them mad. You want something from me, but because you won't believe in me, I'm not going to bow to your wishes. Because you're going to reject me, because you won't look to me in faith, because you're going to continue to demand from me, and I'm going to continue to have to prove myself to you because you won't just trust me, you're going to miss out. He goes on, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine was sent to, <clears throat> or came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Take note. Elijah didn't go to any, any Israelites. He didn't go to any of God's covenant people. He went to a Gentile. And he fed her and not them. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27 says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, take note. Uh, leprosy was a big deal in that day. It was all over the place. It was like there was no cure for it, right? I mean, there, you, you got leprosy and you got expelled from your community. In the days of Elisha, the, the other prophet, you know, one of the prophets that the Israelites looked back on, back on and, and, and had a claim to fame over, Elisha didn't go to any of the Jews and heal them of leprosy, but he goes to a Syrian. At this point, they are boiling. And they've gone from loving Jesus, accepting Jesus, receiving Jesus, to they're ready to kill him. When they heard these things in all, the, in all the synagogue, all in the synagogue, not some in the synagogue, not most in the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Like this is, I mean, just think of this. This is not something that happened as fast as we can read it. I mean, this is them going from the middle of the city to, or the town to outside the town to the edge of a cliff. And I mean, this is, this is work. This is effort. They're so angry that they drive Jesus out. This crowd of people drive him out to the edge of a cliff and they are ready to push him over. I think you can agree with me. I think you can agree with me that things have turned for the worse. Like, this is not what sounded like was going to happen. This is kind of shocking that this is where we're at. They were so cordial, so hospitable, so welcoming. And then suddenly they're ready to kill him. But passing through their midst, he went away. See, I, I think what's happening in this moment, I think what's happening in this moment is that, that we're seeing on a small scale what Israel is going to eventually do. In Nazareth, it looked great. They were happy with Jesus so long as he would exert their power. They were happy with Jesus so long as he would do their wor the work. He would uh, uh, fit their standard, do what they expected him to do. But as soon as he began to confront them, they were angered by him. And all they wanted to do was get rid of him. And that's what happened in Nazareth. That's what happened in Israel. And whether we like to admit it or not, I think that's what's happening in all the world today. We all love Jesus for what he comes to offer us. But when he confronts us and shows us that we are sinners in need of a Savior, boy, that hits too close to home. It's just too difficult for us to deal with. It's too hard for us to, to express. But it's happening all around us. It may be crouched in sayings like, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. 
Now, I won't deny that the church has not always done the right thing in the face of situations and circumstances. And I won't deny that there's a lot of people walking around calling themselves Christians that probably shouldn't call themselves Christians. But Jesus himself said that if they reject you, they reject me. There's no, there's no room for loving Jesus and not his church. He is the head. We are his body. We are intrinsically woven together with him. We read the verse earlier that we are, he is the firstborn among many brothers. That we are his family. You can't have one without the other. To reject the church is to reject Jesus. You can see it in their documentaries and in their investigations of Jesus. You see this every so often, especially coming around Easter time. They start putting out a different one, not, not every year, but every so often throughout the years. You've seen them put together documentaries. And I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the, the culture, the world around us, the world that we live in. And they, they talk about the fact that they're investigating him as a historical figure. And maybe you, maybe you remember, I've shared this once before, I believe, uh, some months ago. I came across a National Geographic series, a National Geographic documentary. It was a several series, and they were investigating Jesus. They were in, investigating his historical life. And they were trying to make a case for why his influence continues even to today. I mean, his influence went from the time of his life in Israel It moved into Rome, and now all over the world you find people who believe and follow him. And they're trying to understand, why is his influence so pervasive? Why does it continue even today, some 2,000 years later? Why is it so pervasive? Because Jesus wasn't the first Messiah that walked into Israel. He wasn't the first self-proclaimed Messiah that walked into Israel. There were many that had come before him, and many that came in after him. And all of them, and what you see, all of them, within just a few short years of their death, all of them, lose influence. The world moves on. The world forgets about that Messiah and waits for the next one to walk in and say, I'm the one. I'm the one that God sent and I'm here to deliver Israel. Well, what was different about Jesus? And so they asked that question. They sought to answer that question. And it was at the end of one of the shows, I think it was an archaeologist that was saying it. Uh, It was it was one of the primary people that they were interviewing that was doing the work. I mean, they, they were digging up all the stuff they could. They were going to places where he had been. They were looking at at all of the documents that they had and trying to understand the historicity of the man and, and understand what happened that made him different. And this archaeologist, it seemed like he, he's like, I got it figured out. He's like, I believe that the reason that Jesus' influence continues to, to move Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome and Rome to America across the world, I believe that the reason he's been so influential is that his followers came to believe that he rose from the dead. Yeah, that's exactly what we believe. It's exactly why we would follow him today. That's exactly what we think he's done on our behalf, paving a road for us in front of us. But as they spoke of it, they weren't talking about Jesus in, in light of him being a savior or one who died sacrificially for us or rose victoriously, defeating death and, and sin for us. They talked of Jesus mechanically. And here's the historical figures. And in fact, even in the documentary, you find that they are not trusting in Jesus. They are not receiving him for who he is or what he's done, what he's taught. 
If they're looking at Jesus like anybody else would look at Jesus, and his followers had this story that they began to tell and convinced others. When it comes right down to it, they will deny his mission, they will deny his message, and they will deny him. They'll deny the man. They'll reject him. And here's the problem with that. You can't have one without the other. There is no room to believe in Jesus and not trust his message. There is no room to look at Jesus and not believe in his mission. If you take Jesus and separate him out from his message and mission, you remove his messiahship. You remove his Christhood. If you take the the message and the mission and you remove Jesus from the equation and all of a sudden then we're trying to do this on our own, we're trying to do this in power that's finite, that's limited, that's incapable. We cannot have one without the other. You cannot separate him out from what he came to do. You cannot make the man not have his message and mission and you cannot have the message and mission without the man. And yet we still strive to deny him we still seek to reject him because if you accept his message if you trust in his mission and you're going to follow the man then you're going to have to admit some very difficult things we live in a world that doesn't want to do that and because they don't want to do it they will be Like Israel, they will be like those in Nazareth, and they will miss the blessing of God. Here's a hard reality that we don't often talk about when we talk about gospel proclamation. Not everyone gets saved. There's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing to be excited about. There's a stark reality of the truth of God sending his son into the world to die in our place for our sins. Many people, many people, most people, according to the way the Bible perceives it or presents it, most people will reject him. Most people will die. Because not everyone is going to admit that they need to be saved. It's not easy to admit it's not easy to admit that, that we're like the widow that, that he referred to in Zarephath. That we're like the widow. Do you know the story of the widow? The widow was at wit's end. The the, the famine, the drought had been lingering on and had gone across the whole land. It wasn't just Israel experiencing it. Everyone was in drought. Everyone was in famine. And people were starving and dying. And Elijah is sitting at this creek and he is being fed by God. And he is drinking water from God at this creek. And and the creek dries up and, and, and he's out of options. But God comes to him and he says, you go to this widow. And so he gets up and he goes to the widow and he shows up at her house and she's gathering sticks. You can read, her, read about her in 1 Kings 17. She's gathering sticks and she's going to go start a fire. She's going to go cook the last of her, make up the last of her oil and the last of her flour so that she can make cakes for her and her son. And she knows she's going to die. She's ready to be done. She knows she's got nothing left. She's got no capability of her own. She is, at, she is helpless. She's like, I'm, this is what she tells Elijah. He shows up and, and she, she's like, what are you doing? And she says, I'm getting sticks so I can go make a cake and me and my son are going to eat our last meal. She recognizes her position. She is totally helpless, totally powerless. 
Elijah says, hey, before you cook yourself cake, cook me a cake. Wait a minute. I, I don't know you. I'm going to give my son and I one last meal before we. That's not how she reacts. She recognizes that God sent him. She goes in and she uses the last, at least perceivingly, the last of what she is going to have to feed Elijah. And Elijah promises her, Your flower will, nev- not, will not end, your, your jar of oil will not run dry. That God will provide for you. You see, it was in her admitting that she was helpless, that she needed to be saved, that she found salvation, that she was made able to eat. Not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone is going to believe that Jesus is the Savior. See, not everyone wants to be, wants to be like Naaman. Not, not everybody is going to re- respond like Naaman. 2 Kings 5, you can read about him for yourself. Naaman was a a powerful man, a a man of means. He was a general. He was was over people. People listened to him. The Bible says that he is a mighty man of valor. But Naaman had leprosy. He had become uh, uh, unclean. He'd become unworthy. Nobody would want to be around him. And he goes to his king in Syria and he's like, hey, I need, I need help. And so the king in Syria sends a note and some money to the king of Israel. And the note says, hey, heal this guy. And the king in Syria is like, I don't, who am I? What can I do about this? He tears his robe and he mourns. Elisha hears about this. Elisha hears and he's like, hey, king of Israel, come send him to me. Time to come to my house. And so Naaman not having any other options, goes to Elisha's house. But when he shows up, Elisha doesn't come out to meet him. There's no fanfare. There's no big no, no party waiting to happen. Elisha doesn't even come out of the door. Just imagine how this breaks against the, the general's sensibilities. Elijah doesn't even go and look. Elisha doesn't even go and look at him, doesn't even go and see him. Instead, he sends a servant out to speak to him. And Naaman hears these words from the servant. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And it's like, wait a minute. what? He didn't even come out? He's not going to be bothered by me? He didn't, he didn't even make his presence known in front of me? And he sends me this messenger to tell me what to do. And, and by the way, the Jordan. Why the Jordan? Syria's rivers are cleaner. Syria's rivers are better. And so Naaman's like, I'm done with this. I'm not about that. So he takes off and he's headed home. And one of his servants, not even knowing that he's a faithful servant, not even knowing that he's being helpful in the midst of God's plan and God's work, the servant goes to Naaman. He's like, Naaman, you've got to listen to this prophet. His words are powerful. You've got to listen to him. Go. And so Naaman's like, he's, he's convinced. He's convinced that the word Elisha shared with him was believable, was trustworthy. And because he believed it, he went and he washed in the Jordan seven times just as he was instructed, and he came out leprosy-free. He was healed. The promise of God is that in Jesus Christ, that same healing is available to us, but not everyone is going to believe that Jesus is the Savior. And so people in Nazareth, the Israelites, many of them 
Most of them, the people that we know and love and care about, the people we speak to on a daily basis, they need to hear this message. They need to know of God's mission. But we need to know that not all will be saved because not everyone wants to believe that they need a Savior. Not everyone wants to admit that they are helpless. So not everyone is going to be saved. I get that this is a a component of the gospel truth that we don't like dealing with. And I'm not trying to be up in the midst of things and say that, hey, just, just don't care. We should be mourning this. God is not rejoicing over the condemnation of the wicked. He, he's grieved at this. But when we preach the gospel, there is one of two things that will happen. People will receive it, and they will receive Jesus with it. Or they will reject. But it is not our responsibility to make that determination for them. It is our responsibility simply to preach the message that they they might hear. John Stott, writing about universalism, kind of addresses this. He says, universalism, that's the idea that everybody's going to end up in heaven one day. Universalism, fashionable as it is today, is incompatible with the teaching of Christ and his apostles and is a deadly enemy of evangelism. The true universalism of the Bible is the call to universal evangelism. We need to go telling everybody. Everybody needs to hear this message. Everybody needs to be told about what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's the call to universal evangelism in obedience to Christ's universal commission. This is, not a, this is not a mission that's been given to one or two or three. This is a mission that all of us are called to be a part of. There's a universal message and there is, a univer, or there is universal evangelism and there is universal commission. But there is not universal salvation. It is the conviction that not all men will be saved in the end, but that all men must hear the gospel of salvation before the end. We're not responsible to save people, but we are responsible to tell people. And if they reject us, it's not us that they're rejecting. It's Jesus. Only those who receive the man Jesus trust his message and his mission will receive the benefit of his blessing. So today, in closing, I just want to challenge you. Maybe you're here and you have been in church all your life. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe, maybe you have, have, have been in this place and followed these things all your life. I want to challenge you, I believe, with what the text challenges us to. I want to challenge you to admit Admit that you are the one that is poor. You may have bank that's overflowing into multiple accounts, but you do not have enough wealth to pay the debt your sin has incurred. Admit your poorness, your poverty. Admit that you are the one in need of healing. Maybe you're not riddled with leprosy. But we are sick. Admit it. 
Admit that you are the one that is captive to sin, that you are enslaved by sin. Admit that you are the one that needs to be freed. Admit that you, apart from Christ, are, 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 are hopelessly oppressed by the sin that's destroying you. Admit it. There is no need to put on a show any longer. There is no need to try to be a person you can't be any longer. And believe. Believe that Jesus is able to bless you. He is able and willing. Let me say able and willing to bless you. He is able to make you rich. He is able to pay a debt that you can't pay. His wealth and his riches are unthinkable. They're unimaginable. They go beyond our our comprehension. And he is giving them to us making us wealthy in His blessing, that believe that Jesus is able to heal you. Apart from Him, we are rotting from the inside out, but because of Him, in Him, by His power, through His work, we are being cleansed and our leprosy is being healed. Our disease is, is, is being riddled or, or, or ridden of. We are, we are walking out of it. Believe that Jesus is able to free you. You no longer have to walk in captivity to the, to the passions of your flesh. You never, no longer have to walk in captivity to the passions of, of uh, the, the desires of your, uh, of your body. You no longer have to walk in captivity to the world around you. You no longer have to walk in captivity to the prince of the power of the air. He has freed you. Pornography has no power on a Christian who believes these things. Alcoholism and the, and, and, and the addictions of this world, they, they have no power over us except, except what we give them. Because in Christ and believing in Him, He has made us free. That's what Paul says. He has made you free, so do not enslave yourself again to a yoke of slavery. You're free. Believe in Him and experience that freedom. Are we going to struggle? Yes, we're going to struggle. Are we going to have to fight? Yes, we're going to have to fight. But we are free. And that's not only how we enter into this relationship, enter into this blessing. It's how we continue in it. So maybe you've never admitted this. Maybe you've never believed it. Today's the day you need to admit this. You need to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. That through him we have these things. And then you need to join every other Christian in the room who has been saved. And quit counting on the moment of admission and belief. And you need to commit to this way. You need to commit to continue admitting your need. You will never live on the face of this earth without a need for the cross. You will never grow beyond your need for his sacrifice in your place for your sins. So long as you're living in this life, in this flesh, your flesh will, uh, the, the desires of your flesh will wage war against your soul. That will continue to happen. And you will still be needy. You will never be in a place where you will have enough 
of him. You need to continue admitting your need for him. When Martin Luther started the Reformation, he nails the 95 Thesis. The very first one is when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. We start repenting. We start admitting that we were wrong. We start repenting and and, and turning at that moment of salvation, but we never stop. Continue this pattern. Continue admitting your need. Commit to this way. Commit to believing in Jesus. I mean, we jump so fast as Christians. You should be doing this, 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 and this. We need to have those conversations. We definitely need to talk about the things that we are called to do. But not until we have settled this. Before we focus on what we are doing, we need to focus on what and in whom we are believing. Christian, your pursuit in your life is repentance and belief every day. Before you can do the good thing, you must believe in the one who's enabled you to do the good thing. It's always about what you believe. And then the doing comes. Doing will always come out of believing. But before you can do the right thing, you must believe in the right one. And then... As you admit your need and as you believe in Jesus to fulfill that need, commit to living faithfully. Once our trust is established, once we are believing in Jesus, that's when we have the opportunity to do the good things he's called us to do. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We can't do those good works until we've been set free. We can't do those good works until we have been healed. We can't do those good works until we have been given wealth from which they come. But these good works have been waiting for us. Because God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The call in the end is ultimately to admit we need Jesus, to believe that Jesus is providing for us, and then to live faithfully, to be like Jesus. Pointing people to the one who saved us, pointing people to this power, and exemplifying it in life. So as we go, the call is to go preaching and proclaiming the gospel that those who need to hear it, and that's everyone, can hear it. And some will receive you, and for those will celebrate. Some will reject you, and for those will mourn. But if we're rejected, may it only be because we are bringing the gospel. May it not be because we went being jerks, we went being hateful, thoughtless, and inconsiderate. May it be because we presented them with the gospel. They are a people in need of a Savior, and Jesus is he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your salvation, for the gifts that you have given us. Thank you for the hope that we have. But may you confront us now, Spirit. Remind us of our need that we might believe more fully.
that we might trust more completely and that we might go living faithfully. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.